Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms from inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe. This is Neurons to Nirvana. My guest on today's episode is Dr. Lisa Vallejos. Dr. Vallejos has been teaching at the college and graduate level since 2009 and has been a therapist since 2004. Also known as Dr. V, has been featured in Allure Magazine, the Denver Post, San Francisco Chronicles, CNN, and many more. Dr. V is a powerful voice in psychology and social justice. Over the years, Dr. V has been increasingly dismayed by the lack of culturally proficient therapists and has prioritized challenging the status quo. Dr. V believes that therapy and psychology needs to be radically overhauled to be effective and accessible to clients who hold marginalized identities. Here is my very heartfelt and vulnerable discussion with Dr. V about the mental health crisis and the origin of the treatment options in the United States. Dr. V offers her root cause analysis of how a lack of community denies us sufficient time to properly grieve and heal from traumatic experiences. Hitting on social inequities as well as gender and racial disparities, we also discuss how traditional forms of therapy is neither affordable for a large segment of underprivileged individuals, nor is it profitable under a managed care insurance-only model for therapists. In addition, I must disclose that Dr. V was gracious enough to take the time to speak with me after losing her friend, Alicia Cardenas, who was both an indigenous artist, activist, and small business owner that was tragically killed along with four victims in a shooting spree by a man with ties to both extremist and white nationalist organizations last week on December 28th. Our interview was recorded just the day after the tragic shooting occurred in the greater Denver, Colorado area. Dr. V shares her touching personal experience, which conveys both the importance and healing power when having a strong foundation within a community by showing love and compassion, even among strangers. Hey, Dr. Lisa Vallejos. 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 Vallejos, that's right. Yeah, you got it. Look at you. Yes, I got. I can get Yave right, you mm-hmm. know, uh, like key. So I did take a lot of Spanish, and I traveled by myself uh, a couple of years ago in South America. One of the things that I mentioned in one of my prior episodes is uh, I was grieving the loss of my father at the time mm-hmm. before my mom got sick, and um, I had a huge void in my life. And so I went and took ayahuasca mm. as an alternative thing because it, the traditional therapy of Wellbutrin, Lexapro, you name it, was, was not effective. It wasn't working. So I went to a retreat in South America, and it was helpful for getting over the, the loss of my father tremendously. And then I get back late October 2019, and uh, a few months later, we have the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I read in one of your articles that 
I think the exact date was March 21st, 2020. Mm. It was very inspiring because I've, this is now my ninth episode of the podcast. Mm. And uh, basically you said, you know, go with your passion. If you're unhappy, go for it. Now, I want that message to, whether it's from me, you, whomever, to never give up because mental illness, mental health is a, it's a struggle. It's been a struggle for me personally Mm -hmm. since I was uh, 16 years old. And I'm one of the lucky ones, like we discussed. My mother, she passed away earlier this year. And so she did leave me with a little bit of money, but I've spent thousands of dollars on self-help and therapy. And if I didn't have a supporting, supportive family and loved ones, you know, one tragic event, I could be anybody on the street or um, there's so much social inequity, uh, racial inequity. And mm-hmm. I see in therapy, I can say as a, as a white male, uh, now 42, I just want to get your thoughts. Mm-hmm. How can this change? What can we do? <laughs> I mean, obviously it's not going to happen overnight. And I know it sounds like such a idea of grandeur, but I'm a hopeful person and I, I want to change. And that's part of what Neurons Through Nirvana is about. Mm-hmm. So to speak to you about that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here with you. I, so I'm laughing because when you said, how do we fix it? And I'm, my first thought is like, well, first we need to burn the whole system down, uh, <clears throat> which of course is probably not going to happen, at least not anytime soon. Um, but really, when we when we start looking at mental health in particular, um, the very origins of mental health are constructed in a very Western, individualistic, classist sort of way. So even from the very inception, it was wealthy white people who were getting therapy. The theories that were created to discuss mental health and mental illness were uh, explored, tested, and validated on wealthy white people, and then eventually uh, lower class, and it kind of spread out from there. But a lot of what we're seeing in our society is, I believe, is caused by a lack of community, a lack of connectivity, um, isolation, this idea that we're supposed to be able to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and be okay when we're existing in systems that are meant to keep us down. So I just... um, tweeted a few minutes ago because somebody was asking about the link between violence and mental illness. And I said, I, I feel like being well-adjusted in a sick society is not actually a sign of wellness, right? So it's like right. when we look at what's going on in the U.S. and lack of accessible health care, racist systems, like all of these things, those of us who are not doing well, are actually probably healthier than the people who are like, what, everything is great, because it's really not. And, um, you know, I love to travel, and I I see people who have been not as, as fortunate as myself, and um, I'm, I met with a shaman, and I, <laughs> and I told him about uh, a funny story about a girlfriend and issues and it just perplexed him because he basically was saying 
uh, you, you, you white people, you, you Westerners, you and your silly problems. Like that's, it seems so, so trivial to him when, you know, he came and met me to do like a, he was doing a, a tea leaf reading and it was, and he came in from the Andes mountains, Peru. I was sort of asking for his advice and it, just my, my issues seemed so ridiculous and trivial to him. Yeah. I mean, it really is. That's why that, the, the, the concept of first world problems Right. That's why that became and it's such a normal thing. It's like we're griping about things like <clears throat> somebody not texting us back or um, the line is too long or our Starbucks drink wasn't right or whatever. When there are people who are literally don't have homes and who don't have food and don't have any, you know, are literally impoverished and um, have no way out. So often we get caught up in our problems which are actually very luxurious problems to have. It doesn't mean that they're not important, that it's not valid, right? It doesn't mean that like if, if your biggest problem is a breakup, it's still painful. It's still a problem. So it's not to minimize, but I like to keep things in perspective that like right. my problem for me, when I take a step back and kind of look at it from a global scale, it suddenly seems much smaller and then it doesn't feel so important. Right. So then I can appropriately manage it instead of thinking like this is the worst thing ever. And then recognizing that really it's actually not as bad as I'm thinking it is. I came from a family of very strong women. Mm -hmm. My mother was, I mentioned on the opening, she was both a Southern belle and a gangster. She was a badass. And my sisters are strong women. Uh, my aunts, I was raised by just really powerful women. And I'm watching things that are very disturbing to me, particularly I live in Austin, Texas. I'm from the state of Georgia, where you are literally watching perhaps the rights of mm -hmm. choice for women's bodies being taken away because of. Mm -hmm. It's power. It's power. Um, empowered women are threatening right you know that like you said uh we we can do both like there there's that quote about like ginger rogers did everything that fred astaire the dancer she did everything that he did backwards and in heels there is that that piece that empowered women um, are very threatening to <clears throat> you know patriarchy and and these systems upon which our society is built right and so whenever I talk about this, when I talk about this with other clinicians or psychologists or um, students or trainees, I always talk about it sort of like the that conversation that Neo and Morpheus have in the first matrix when he says like, you know, if you take the, the blue pill, you'll go back and you'll just whatever to your regular life. But if you take the red pill, then you'll see how far down the rabbit hole this goes, right? And, and having these conversations about mental health and the inequities within the systems of mental health, it really kind of is like pulling the thread on the inequities within the systems as a whole, right? Because we can't talk about, 
mental health and the lack of accessibility and how expensive it is without talking about managed care, because part of that is part of why it's expensive and part of why these issues are the way that they are is because managed care has deemed therapy not as valuable or not important. Right. And so it's not an included benefit and it's not covered by a lot of insurances. And then what it, what it, when it is covered, it's often at rates that are so low that therapists can't afford to live if they just right. need insurance. And so then that goes to uh, how people have determined that in the U.S., the systems here that um, health and access to health care and these, these services are a luxury that we have to pay for when in other developed countries, those things are included, right? And so then it goes back to, we can just kind of, we have to go down and kind of pick it all apart and see that it's just the way that mental health is working right now is meant, it's doing exactly what these systems were uh, meant for it to do, which was to keep it inaccessible and keep it unavailable. Because if we start getting well collectively, right, then that also will change the, what we're willing to accept and what we're willing to tolerate from the powers that be. I mean, it's become an epidemic in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we don't change the healthcare system, what, what is the model country for this? Is there one? I don't think there is necessarily a model country, but I think that we do need to look to more of like liberation psychologies and collectives or like a decolonized lens because um, so much of what we're doing in mental health is done in isolation. Right. So I, a traditional psychotherapeutic model is going to be like, well, you know, um, I understand that you've lost both of your parents kind of in your situation, but now you've gone, you've been grieving for a whole six months. Now it's becoming pathological. Maybe we should put you on some meds, right? When in indigenous cultures and in more um, community centric cultures, it was expected that you would feel crappy after losing both parents in a short period of time, right? That people aren't looking at you and saying like, wow, you should really, um, be over it by now. What happens is that in collective cultures, that community comes together, that people offer support where you would be not expected to go back to work two weeks after or a week after or five days after losing somebody in your life. You would be expected to be nurtured and take care of, taken care of and um, other people would help you. But we don't do that here. This is becoming a, a real problem. Mm-hmm. And people... Um, what are your thoughts? I've, I've seen you've, you've written some. I'd love to get your insight on how social media has affected all of this. Yeah, well, social media is like uh, a double-edged sword because in, in many ways it can be informa- you know, informative. It can, be, it can keep you connected to things and also connect you to people that you might not otherwise be connected to like this, for instance, right? right. And... Um, it's not a substitution for relationship, right? So we can have connections that are on social media, but that doesn't substitute for real life, you know, person to person. And of course, in a pandemic, that means something a little bit different, right? Because sometimes we're not able to meet with people like in person because of the pandemic. But 
still it's a different context of like having video conversations and scheduling time to talk with people. And so social media is pretty much like anything that it's okay in small doses, but it shouldn't be like the main source. And and when I say that, I want to say also like when I say shouldn't be, I mean, I also want to speak to the fact that there are people who are disabled and who are homebound and uh, people who aren't able, literally are not able to connect with people in that way. And that is something too, that, that I'm not speaking to that particular subset. I'm talking about um, other people who don't have those um, challenges, limitations. And you're in Denver. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing, I mean, I'm seeing there's a lot of tribalism and and it's with masks people are getting. I mean, we're having another wave of COVID and uh, I've been vaccinated three times, but it's it's almost like there's a sense of dogma. One way is right or the other. Right. Right. And yeah, Um, that's everywhere. Like it's not as bad here. Like I was in Arizona for the last, you know, off and on for the last year. And it was really interesting there because it was like completely opposite. It was like you go into a store and if there's a hundred people, maybe 10 would be wearing a mask and 80 would not. And then in Colorado, like in Denver, there's a mask mandate in the city and county of Denver. And so it's the exact opposite here, where it's like you go into a store and there's 100 people, um, 80 are wearing masks, 10 might be wearing masks, in, not at all, or inappropriate, like under their nose or whatever. And right. those are the people, other people are like, hey, yo, put your mask up, you know, or like put a mask on or whatever. So it's completely different. So I think it is definitely related to geography. So more progressive or liberal areas, you'll see more like conscientiousness and mass compliance. And um, in like the red, more conservative areas, you see the opposite. And in your area or that you know of for people who are in dire need of, you know, um, counseling Mm -hmm. that don't have the means uh, Yeah, there's a few. There's some organizations. So beyond the community mental health centers, because community mental health centers, in my opinion, um, they don't actually, they do what they can. But again, as being part of the system, the work that they can do is limited. So oftentimes what I find is community-based organizations. So um, organizations like in Denver, the um, Therapists of Color Collective, that is a space that will offer some support or people house. And um, I'm trying to think if there's other places that I can think of um, and queer asterisk in Boulder, Colorado, there's a few places that <clears throat> will offer lo- more affordable, accessible services to people who really need it. The problem is, is that there's not enough organizations and agencies that have enough resources to be able to do that. I mean, how do we overcome this as a society? Is it, I mean, I know you've mentioned tribalism, but I mean, it's just the world is so polarized and, you know, even myself, people are like, buck up. Yeah. They don't understand that the woman who created me Mm -hmm. is no longer with me Mm -hmm. or either one of my parents for that matter. Right. So it's foreign for, you know, most of my friends still have both of their parents. Mm-hmm. I do have a 
few have lost or um you know i think of people who children who who lost their parents at like six and and then they don't have the means to to do and then it's just it's mind-blowing to me yeah um I mean, one thing that I can recommend that I think that is is super undervalued and is one of the most amazing ways um, is um, peer-based groups. So oftentimes when we talk about peer-based groups, we look at things like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? right. Um, but there's also like Codependence Anonymous. There's, uh, I mean, you can find an anonymous group for just about anything, right? And there's also right. groups like... Um, I'm thinking like uh, Dharma Recovery, it's D-H-A-R-M-A. And so there's like, then there's um, Buddhist meditation slash healing groups. So outside of, I mean, of course, it would be great if everybody was able to have mental health care, but if you're not able to, plugging into communities with people that understand what you're struggling with, right? Understand... um, what's going on, grief groups, um, any sort of affinity groups like that can be some of the most healing and transformative spaces that you can find. I would say like, I went through a period of time where I was just really down. I was just like, I've gone through a lot of trauma. I'm not going to get into that. And I finally just kind of reached my breaking point where I was like, I'm just depressed and I'm not happy. I was in a job that I didn't like. I was just not, I wasn't feeling it. Then the pandemic hit and it was kind of like my mental health just kind of went downhill. And so I started doing groups. I started joining meditation groups and like women's groups and just as many things that I could do. And so I didn't care if it was like a group that didn't even like that was dealing with something that I wasn't dealing with. I was like, I just need to be around people that, um, I can get something from them and I can offer something to the group. And once that happened, that is where my real healing and transformation started to to happen. I mean, I do have access to, to therapy, so that was another avenue. But the other piece was when you join these kinds of groups, right? A meditation group where you talk about some of the things that you're challenged with or breathing groups or whatever, what you often find is people who have no reason to care about you. They don't know you. They've never met you before. You're just happen to be in the same group at the same time. And you start reaching out for help and for connection and for love and people reach back. And that's one of yep. the most amazing things that I've experienced was that, um, that there were, when I was sad, if I reached out for help, that I had 20 people who would reach back. I mean, I'll give a perfect example. I was in Mexico. I don't care if they judge me or not, but it was a combo. It, do you know what combo is? It's a detox that comes from a frog mm-hmm. uh, venom, venom from the Amazonian jungle. And uh, it was with a, a, both a female and male shaman. Mm-hmm. And they, they just put small little pricks in either your arm or they did it in my back. They said, why are you here? And I told them about my mother. Mm-hmm. And all I did was just sit there and cry. Now, mm-hmm. people normally like ayahuasca, they'll throw up. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was just smiling mm-hmm. and feeling love from people who there was a language barrier. I mean, I speak Spanglish. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I have a working knowledge just to feel that human interaction and love from a different culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, ga- it gave me hope. Mm-hmm. It gives me hope that humanity can can look past the mm-hmm. racial barriers. But I see just so much pain in the world right now and, you know, and violence. And I, I don't know where I just, you know, I wanted to get your input on where we began. Sure. Because. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, because I was just saying I'm, I'm being proactive. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not staying in my apartment. I know that I need help mm-hmm. and want to share and celebrate the message of uh, using this as a platform mm-hmm. for artistry, mm-hmm. innovation, mental health and healing of the mind and soul. I mean, that's essentially what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, you know, when I came across some of your, your writings and I just, uh, it resonated and I I wanted to speak to you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I would say that like maybe being judged isn't, you know, necessarily the, the, like I don't right. are judging you, but they're I, the the best thing that I've ever seen. It was like conversation that uh, Muhammad Ali had with somebody, and it, I don't remember who it was, but he said essentially, imagine there were a hundred snakes coming down that aisle, right? And out of the hundred snakes, that there's only a couple that are poisonous, but you don't know that, right? You don't know that there are uh, which of the snakes are poisonous, and so do you kind of like hang out and wait to see which of the snakes bites you and see if you get, you know, die from snake venom, or do you close the door and kind of protect yourself for a lot of people, myself included, that there is a part of me that until I know somebody and I know that they are um, not a person, and this is for anybody, it's not just like, um, but it's like, there's a, there's a certain hesitance, like I'm not quite sure. And so kind of learning to just discern for, and, and be, and pay attention to that. Um, is and, and it's not that we're that people are necessarily like judging people based on their skin color as much as it is like recognizing that there's this pattern of behavior that we've experienced and we need to be a little bit careful. Correct. I just wish that the, the, there was more unity, and I I don't, know, I don't know I don't know what the right answer is. But when I went to Mexico and I was at this. Uh, just one day retreat with people of all color and, and, uh, and from Switzerland and uh, New Zealand and Mexico, there was language barriers, but it it was just, it made me feel Mm -hmm. so hopeful that, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we can get through all this. Yeah. If we can somehow get a better system, the shitty one that we have right now in America. Right. Yeah, I think that that, uh, yeah. And I think that it's important to recognize that at least a third of our population right now um, in the U.S. in particular is anti-science. They're anti-justice. They're anti, you know, like they're completely against all of the things that we're talking about right now, meaning that they don't want systems of equity. They don't want women to have body sovereignty. They don't want LGBTQIA plus people to have rights. They don't want, 
people of color to have rights or equal rights. And so we can't, for me, I, I can understand where they're coming from, but I can't be friends with people who would be comfortable um, forcing me to have a pregnancy from a rapist. Like I can't because I am at risk. And I, I, respect, well, I understand where people come from, but personally, I, I, where I live. Yes. Arm's length. I mean, I haven't. So a lot of my friends, I haven't actually spoken to directly about what's going on with the rights. Yeah. Uh, uh, Roe versus Wade. But, it, you know, I think about my sisters and it's wrong. And I think that we're coming from this, we're coming from the same space because like, I don't believe in approaching things from like an angry, um, violent place, you know? And so when I say like keeping my distance, it's not an angry, like stay away from me. My feelings are still fueled by love. It's still, it's like, I can love right. you from a distance. Like it might be across the country, maybe across the world. Um, and I can still offer, yeah, a compassionate understanding. Um, but I, but I won't like pretend, you know, that what people are saying or doing is okay. And I think we're, right. I think we're saying the same thing. It's not okay. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with how our news system is set up. It's so polarized. You turn on Fox and you got this one message and then you turn on another station mm-hmm. and now I don't know. Yeah. Um, there is, there's a thing and it's called the media bias chart. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it before, but it's, um, I'm trying to remember it's based out the, the person who created it is based out of Denver. And essentially what they did was create this, um, they had reviewers. So like blind reviewers, like you do in peer reviewed research, that reviewed and um, rated articles and information from like a bunch of different websites. And they had like hundreds of people that did the review. And these people then rated it as did this article, was it neutral? Did it skew right? Did it skew left? How far? And it kind of did this. And so then they created this chart that shows media sources that skew far right, right, central, left, far left. And so- Using something like that is really helpful because then you can start seeing, right? You know, if you're looking at something like NPR, for instance, that that's going to be pretty neutral reporting. But if you're looking at like MSNBC, it skews left. If you're looking at Fox, it skews left. If you look at the Daily Caller, it's way left, way right. So kind of, um, I love using that as uh, a guideline as to what media I'm consuming and sharing. And um, so I'm not part of the problem. Right. I mean, I also enjoy watching BBC or uh, news sources from other countries to get, because it gives me a little bit of a more of a a different perspective (laughs) that it feels as though like each and every day I have to recalibrate. Mm Mm-hmm. Part of the problem is that incels believe that they're entitled to women's bodies, right? Which goes back to sort of what we were talking about with the women's rights, right? Women's rights to bodily autonomy. Those systems are entrenched, right? Patriarchy, incel is, they they work together. But part of it is that they feel entitled to it. Part of it is that they feel like just because they exist, that they should be able to access uh, women's bodies when they have no respect for women, they have no um, genuine or authentic desire to relate to women as 
women. They just want uh, vaginas without a brain, you know, or like what that, that representative, the one uh, Madison Cawthorn just, you know, referred to women as earthen vessels. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I mean, that's yeah. absurd. They, they don't understand that they have to actually be likable and that they have to actually bring something to the table. Uh, uh, social skills, mm-hmm. uh, learn how to interact yeah. and relate to people. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more attractive to me than and empowering the women that I'm attracted to, and who've always in my life have always been intelligent, independent women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my my sisters and my mom and my aunts were role role models for that. And uh, you know, I feel like maybe I'm in the minority. And I I do think that uh, religion mm-hmm. has has is is a problem you know uh people aren't gonna like hearing this but i was raised presbyterian and my father he was a catholic and he left the catholic church because of birth control Mm -hmm. and he was born in 1933 and Mm -hmm. so that's very progressive on his part knowing like that's ridiculous none of us know what's going to happen in the next life none of us know and we're in grave danger of women losing the rights of their body and people, like you said, the LGBT community. I mean, it's, it's scary what's going yeah. on all mm-hmm. because of political appointments. Mm-hmm. Are you involved uh, currently in the Denver community in regards to that? Uh I mean, to the extent that I can be, um, my, my, you know, engagement tends to be um, very behind the scenes. Like I support the candidates that I, um, you know, believe in, um, attend outreach events and provide services and do things like that. Um, that's kind of where, where I land with that. In terms of politics, you know, that's just not... I, I don't see myself ever like running or doing anything well, like no, that. I, I don't I mean that. Like in, you know, I'll continue. Just, you know, like, like grassroots, you know, yeah. are you in your community? That's the, yeah, I think that's pretty much the only way to do it. Grassroots and activism, uh, mutual aid, showing up for people. Um, I agree. Before Christmas, we went, my, my daughter and I went to, um, a toy outreach. Essentially, we um, there was a, an organization, a couple of organizations, and um, one of the school board members here that came together and had literally like a warehouse full of toys that they had gotten. And so we just a bunch of people from the community went down and stocked the toys and um, packed them up for kids that needed toys and handed out. I think it was like four thousand toys. Um, during those two days. And so that's the kind of stuff that, that I do. So little things in life. That's, uh, that's the way I've, you know, I, I think if I could just help one person, there's fulfillment. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I just, uh, so if people could just open their, their hearts a little, a little more, Yeah. And challenge the stuff that we've been, that we've been taught, you know, the stuff that we've been told that we don't question. I think that's a, um, 
that's a huge thing. That's a, that's a huge starting point is looking at what have I been taught? What have I been told that I've never questioned, um, that I need to start questioning? Uh, another thing was, um, you know, my mother, she suffered from depression and she had me late in life. So I was, I at a young age was raised by a wonderful black lady by the name of Regina Johnson because my mom was not, she mm-hmm. was also working, which she had the thyroid, mm-hmm. hypothyroidism. And so that was early on when they didn't know. I mean, Synthroid, I think, has just come around. This is, I'm talking about in the late mm-hmm. 80s. And so uh, I was lucky and was exposed to being around different cultures, but I feel like if you're not exposed and you're just siloed in your one mm-hmm. world, then how do you fix it? That's a huge, that's a huge thing because studies have shown that even babies as early as like three and six months old can recognize difference. And so if you take a baby who's only been around people that look like them, they're going to notice and they're going to feel a little bit apprehensive about people that they've like not seen before. And so having exposure and not like cultural tourism where you go and you're like, Oh, look at the you know, people, you know, but really being embedded and, and growing together. So like there are schools in different places, for instance, like um, Denver has a school that a K through eight school that has um, it's the, designated K through eight school for immigrants and refugees. And so there's like, I think something like 51 different languages that are spoken by the students student body, getting involved in communities like that, right. Where, where your normal experience is being around people who don't look like you, who don't come from the same cultural background. The more that we are embedded in communities that are diverse the more uh, we learn and the better people we become. But we can't just ex- we can't just be in our own groups, our own social groups, and and then think that we're not going to do some kind of harm because some we sometimes we just don't know, right? Um, so the one of the best ways is compassion. It's like you you look at the stories of like um, people who are converted from like the KKK. And what usually changes is that they meet somebody who um, defies all of what they thought they were against, and it opens their hearts and their minds to compassion and to difference. Then they start questioning whether what they believed was actually true. I, I can't thank you enough for taking yeah. the time to, to yeah, speak with me you. and giving me perspective, uh, your perspective. It just coming back from Mexico, literally, I, I had no idea about the, I've been sort of trying to disconnect because of the tragic news of what's happened in your community. Thank you. Yeah, that's been tough. I'm, I'm so sorry. I know that's been very hard. Bring it full circle. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. The, the quandary that we're in. Mm-hmm. And that's also where um, community comes in. You know, yesterday, um, my daughter and I went to one of the shooting sites where one of our um, friends was murdered. And we went to put candles and to light some incense in her memory and in the memory of the 
other people who were killed and the people who are still fighting for their lives. There were some indigenous relatives that were there that were smudging and cleansing the space. And they offered the smoke medicine to both of us. You know, we talked about compassion with groups and showing up and people caring about you, even though they have no reason to. And that was one of those moments where um, when this relative offered the smoke medicine, that was when I really wept. And it was because it was such a kind gesture and it was such a um, reaching out from someone who didn't have to, right? Someone who didn't have to offer care did. And, um, And I think if we can, as a people, be more aware of that and just offering care and compassion whenever we have the opportunity that we may have a chance at um, changing the tide and actually making a difference. Yeah. One day at a time, just keep fighting. Yep. Always. And leading with love. Love is the most important thing. Yep, it is. Well, you know, without, without love, we're nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's where, that's where, from my own personal experiences and from people who, you know, uh, suffer and end up taking their own lives without, you know, that's all. Yeah. Love is the first and foremost. It is. It's the most important thing. And if we can just look past differences, you know, so anyway, I I thank you again for taking the time. Mm -hmm. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, you too. I'm sure we'll be in touch. I would like to thank Dr. V again for sharing not only her professional expertise, but also her heartfelt and personal insights as well. It's the little things, as they say, or acts of kindness that are more impactful than one might actually realize. Dr. V shared her extremely personal experience of where the indigenous relatives of the victims of the recent shootings in Denver provided a small yet profound act of kindness to both Dr. V and her daughter by offering the smoke medicine in cleansing space, or in a more macro-looking lens, the importance of being part of collective cultures, community-centric or specific support groups can leave an indelible impression with the healing process of losing a loved one or overcoming trauma, pain, or suffering in any way. Also, I want to thank Dr. V and all the listeners out there for allowing me to share and use this podcast as a platform to fulfill my own curiosity in a cathartic and exploratory way through our discussion about the current U.S. healthcare system. I'm excited to share that my next guest will be Scott Berman. Scott is the CEO and co-founder of the Panther Group. I will be discussing with Scott the expanding cannabis industry and the increasing recognition of the use of cannabis in the treatment of overall anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Scott will also share his thoughts on where the industry will be heading soon, and as statistically backed data continues to increase the overall growth of acceptance of its medicinal benefits nationally, will this finally lead to the long-awaited possibility of legalization on the federal level as the industry grows exponentially in the next two years? As always, I want to thank you all for listening. And until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana.